Hey, this is The Moment. I'm Brian Koppelman. Thanks for listening. My buddy Wright Thompson is a spectacular writer. It's weird, you know, in these times of parasocial relationships, um, often I have people come up to me and talk to me like they're my friend and, and, uh, and you are like, cause they listen to this podcast, right. And they feel like they know me. And honestly, if you've been listening to this podcast for a couple of years, you do know a big part of, of who I am. And I'll say, I, I call right my buddy, even though we've only really had one dinner together, though we've communicated a lot, um, through text and we have friends in common. But the reason I feel like you're my pal beyond that is that Pappy Land, the incredible, well, I guess what started out as a book about Julian, who is the proprietor of Pappy Van Winkle, and about the heritage of Kentucky whiskey. And the book is those things. But what it really turns into is a book about your heart, right? And about, about Julian's heart and about the kind of bonding of, of hearts that can happen uh, between um, a whiskey maker and the uh, ingredient, the mash, right? And also uh, between a bottle of whiskey and a connoisseur or a drinker of whiskey, between two men who are from similar but different places, but of different generations and different modalities of living life and how they can connect, and about how a reader can connect with a guy writing the book. I, 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 Amy and I listened to Pappy Land together driving around LA about a year and a half ago. We would drive and, you know, in LA, you're just driving and driving and driving. We don't, you know, it's not my favorite place to be, but um, we would just stay in the car. We'd look at each other and we'd go, should we just go drive and listen to write? And we would just go driving at night and listen to Pappy Land together. And, and it also had the effect of touching our hearts and creating this incredible moment and memory for the two of us. The, the, the book is um, a marvel. It's one of these books that only comes along every few years. And it, it drove me to start reading Wright Thompson's other works. And um, of course I knew your name and I, I knew your work a bit, but when I read your collection and then went back on the internet and sort of finding stuff, man, I just think you're as good uh, a writer. People call you the best American sports writer. And, and since my buddy Bill Simmons, I doesn't write anymore. I mean, he's hung it up. Uh, so Simmons, if you're listening, look, man, uh, I got to give right the crown because you're not, you don't, I mean, it, it also, it was nice of Bill to leave some room for yes, the rest of us. Yes, he seated the... Yeah, yeah, like, like, just like, come on, man, I got bills, Bill. It's like, interesting. <laughs> he both seated the ground and seated the ground. Go, go, he the, both. Oh, look at you. He did See, both the, things. The, yeah, there you go. That's, he seated the ground for fuckers like you, and then he seated the ground to you. And you know, it's so... And he's one of those people who's just lovely. And his heart... Well, I'm, I want to thank you for all of that, but about Bill, like one of the things about Bill and this is hard to believe given his reputation and the books he sold, it's, he's chronically underrated as a writer. Like, like, like really. And so you go back and read some of that stuff and it's just incredible. Uh, oh, that was very kind. Uh, I remember I went and saw, there was a quote that was in my head when I was writing and uh, I went to see Death of a Salesman uh, a long time ago with, with, uh, I saw it too. With Philip Seymour yeah, Hoffman. Yeah, man, it was incredible. And uh, when, and Andrew Garfield was in it, and there's a, when when Mrs. Lohman steps up to the front of the stage at the very end to deliver a, the attention should be paid monologue, uh, I mean, my hair's standing up on my arm right it's, now. Dude, I got chills Because right it, yeah. it was like, it felt in the room, in the moment, like you were watching someone pitch a perfect game, the whole cast, and if she didn't stick the landing on this monologue, you know, like those things have a half-life of nothing. And I just remember walking out of there and thinking about my father, like just, I walked out of that theater as emotional as I've ever been by a piece of art ever. And Mike Nichols' daughter-in-law, Rachel Nichols, uh, is one of my dear friends and-, and uh, Mike directed that production. Directed that production. And so I just sent her an email 
standing on the sidewalk. Awesome. It was like, hey, if it comes up at Thanksgiving, you know, and I got this email back from Mike Nichols, and, and it was beautiful. And one of the things he said was, uh, uh, I've shared this with the cast and crew because uh, it reminds us what's possible out there in the dark. And like, you send a book in, I mean, you send a book in as an attachment to an email, you know, of like, course. like, like yes, it, it, know. It's, it's insane that then it goes somewhere and somehow gets printed. And like what you just dream of is that maybe one person will have that thought that you just described and you never hope to dream that you might ever learn that they've had it. And so like sitting there, it just, uh, it's interesting. I'm, uh, it's just, it, it, it's, it's kind of a miracle and I'm very grateful. Well, it's like, um, I remember I was really resistant to read that book at first because when I saw the title and what it purported to be about, yeah, why Pappy Van Winkle is uh, so important. Well, it could have easily been merch. Well, yeah, it could have been merch, but also it could have been um, like those letters people used to write at the beginning of Cigar Aficionado. Oh, God. Oh God! You know, like we just they would uh, talk about oh. how, dear Marv, I was sitting uh, on the veranda oh. at my club. Oh yeah, uh, oh. and I lit up a macanudo oh, yeah. with uh, a rapper from the Dominican Republic. Yeah, yeah. And uh, like, you know, a checklist. Smoke, yeah, like, as okay. the smoke started to curl off the cigar, the, I I thought about my father, my eighty-two foot Jim Smith and, yeah, this, fishing boat. Well, I thought about my, how my dad had missed a putt on 16 uh, and had to do 10 push-ups. And, you know, I, I, I thought it was going to be a sort of a macho pan to, you know, the, the, like the joys bro, of whiskey. Like brotastic. Yeah, the joys of whiskey. And, and what it turns out to be, uh, as I said, it's about these hearts connecting, but, but it's, it is also... The journey of someone reckoning with his own childhood, two people reckoning with their own childhoods, reckoning with the legacy, legacies of their families, their extended families, uncles come into this thing, and about an author deciding to trust not only the guy he's traveling with, and not only the reader, but himself and his wife and the world to allow him to maybe chase happiness by having a child. And... God, you're going to make me cry. I just sat down. I see it. Well, because it. I only read the book once, dude. And I, I haven't looked at it. I haven't picked it up since I read it. How about that? Yeah. And all of it, it's that vital and vibrant to me because we are... And this is why I, I, I was like... That's why when you and I met, we were friends yeah. already because you show us... You were willing to trust all that and try to be happy. You know, it's interesting because the book that was sold was not the of one. Of course, it was. Of course, and not. so uh, uh, God bless. I have the. I know everybody says this. I do think I have the world's best book editor, uh, a guy named Scott Moyers at Penguin Press, and uh, I wrote a third of this and just put myself in it. And like, didn't tell it. And I was just like, I always feel like it's better to just do something than try to describe it. Often, that's and, the case. And so like, if you're willing to, if you're willing to pay the price, and of to that, start over. Like, if he had just come back and was just like, I remember know. hearing Stephen King talk about that years ago, before on writing, yeah. how he would sometimes get all the way in and then have to tear it up. Oh, I mean, you know, I, before I was a writer, I remember hearing and being like. How? What? But it is unbelievably liberating to have the gut, like, or just to throw to, it away, just to be like. You know, well, let's well, start over. So, oh, it just makes me sick. But so you stomach. just made the choice. When did you realize it, man? So I had uh, there, and I'll send them to you. I have them. There are a couple of uh, false starts that were 10, 12,000 words uh, that were just totally stillborn. And there uh -huh. just was no, like, anything going to them. And, like, I didn't care. Oh, you weren't in it. And you I, weren't I in the book then. I wasn't you in were it. just telling the history of the history yes, of. Uh, it was just like. Like this is oh mash build right that's yeah, the expression yeah, like, yeah, yeah. sorry I was trying to remember no, is mash bill yeah like, mash bill so mash bill is the thing yes okay which, and you which, you were just describing the mash bill I was just talking about yeah. you know the yeah. Kentucky Derby Day nineteen thirty five and just like yes. you know and so like 
I just started to feel like I was having this incredible experience uh, going and talking to him and then the prompts that those conversations were making me think about sort of my own life and what, you know, my wife and I were going. And I, I just was starting to, I just felt like if you're writing a book and the most interesting version of creating it only exists in your head and doesn't get on the page, then you just need a new line of work. That like you're just not you're just not doing the thing. But it's interesting. Um, like worrying about that is very important at certain stages. Yeah. But it can be crippling in the early stages <sighs> uh, because Amy and I were just we were just talking about Seymour and introduction. We hadn't Anna, uh, Anna our daughter had just reread Franny and Zoe and Amy oh, yeah. picked up Seymour and introduction and, and she turned to me the other day and she was like. You know, he's just after something so different in this. Uh, sometimes it's hard to catch the wave of it. So I picked it up the other morning and I started reading it out loud to her. And, you know, immediately you're struck by the quotes about essentially the feeling a writer has and the inability to get it on the page exactly. How there's always something lost in that. And I think about this with profiles all the time because there are a couple of people, Theo Epstein, uh, Pat Riley... There are a couple of people I felt like, like I knew as well as I knew any human being in my life. Yes. And uh, the distance between that and the page oh. is always like, I was so frustrated with the Pat Riley when I wrote it and wrote it and wrote it and wrote it and wrote it, threw it away over and over because I was just like, I know this guy and he he's not on this page. And that was just like, it's one of those things where you really like, look, if I can't do this, then I, I, yeah, I'm done. Like, but, but when do you when do you allow that critical voice to come in? And then I want to get back to the exact yeah. narrative of how you did this, did yeah, those 20,000 pages. Yeah. Because I think as writers, it's um, we always look for ways to defeat ourselves. And so that uh, sometimes you can't, you know, you, that's a great way to not have to do the work is to go, well, the thing I'm, this emotion I'm feeling, I'm not getting it out. It's not there. Uh, this 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 feeling in my head about what this piece is doesn't isn't here. So, so one of the things I mean, and I, I don't want to talk about what it is only because we haven't announced it yet. But I'm working on a thing, and so my rule is, uh, I write a thousand words a day, every day that is in the arc, that is in the sort of outline that's in my head. Uh, I didn't start with an outline. I wrote the first twenty five thirty thousand words of it, just feeling my way section to section, and now it is declared what it wants to be so it's actually easy to go out and then just shell in the scenes you know so like on the airplane today i wrote a thousand words and then i started sort of shelling out other sections and then when i had ideas about the book or about the arc of the narrator I just will riff that out without worrying about where it's going to go. Yes. And I have a fire, I have a word doc that is just called book riffs and I just drop them in there. But when, when the thing isn't feeling, it's like when you were oh, saying the thing yeah. isn't feeling like it's, Oh, when it's not working, it's not quite there. And um, where you're like, Oh, I have this feeling in my head. It's this amorphous thing, but I, I feel it. And, but, but something's getting lost Yeah. when I'm, when yeah. I'm writing, how do you know when to, press on uh, and how do you know question. when to when to pull the ripcord that's a really good question uh well i mean i'm sure this is because like such a cop-out but i think you know yeah uh and there and i used to when i was on the fence like my best friend is a is seth wickersham yeah you know good and writer he, and he's amazing and it's been it's what and you know you just talked about your writing partner i mean we don't work on stories together but we are writing partners in that way and so you know he's doing a book now too uh we did the last one sort of in concert like we both write the same roughly the same kind of stories like having someone walking along the path with you to sort of who knows and also who knows your shit yes and like so you know i used to like I would send it to him, like, is this working or not? And then I have learned that the urge to send it to him is its own answer. Absolutely. And also, and so I don't either way, by the way, it can be. I, I completely know that. I completely know Just that. If, if, if I'm not confident uh. enough, then I already know what the answer what? is. And I'm trying to lawyer my way out of it. Uh, a couple things about that. So <laughs> I guess, one, what you were describing that was going on with the first draft yeah. of Pappyland is 
it was inert. So when it's inert, you know. As a writer, as a it's professional not, writer, you know when it's in, uh, um, inert. It's just in neutral. It's just... And I used to do this, Amy, and we always talk about this thing um, when I was an A&R guy, and, but it applies now with the work, all this work too. When I was an A&R guy and you'd be trying to get a mix right or you would be working with an artist and wonder if the collection of songs was good enough yet to go make the album, sometimes what I would do, what one would do, is you would call one of the other A&R guys, your peers, in to your office. You'd be like, hey, I want to play you something. But the, as soon as you hit play, you, the person, knew. I didn't need the A&R guy to say shit to me or A&R woman to say shit to me. Uh, the second I started playing it, I could just like stop and thanks for coming in. I got it. It's yeah. not ready yet. No, no. I can't it, start. Like you would just instantly, the, I, the act of it is enough to know you can't. I, uh, I like to read over an editor's shoulder because reading it without having my hands on the keys... I know. I'm just like, stop reading. Yes. Stop reading. I got to tell them it's not ready. Yeah, this We're is not this, ready. No, this sucks. Like, uh, so, I mean, that that is interesting. So, with the specifics. Yeah, so, of, so you get 20,000 words in and you're like, and you're reading it over. Do you do you read over in the morning? When do you read stuff? Uh, so, it depends. Uh, I'll read over in the morning until I know instinctively, until I got the voice. Yeah, yeah. And then until uh, I know like where it's going to go. And then like, like right now I got 70, 69, 70,000 words sitting in a word doc. I can't do that every day. No, you can't read like, all no, the way no, up. No. And so like, I'll go back and read pieces of it. Uh, every couple of weeks I'll print it and read it. Uh, but no, I mean, you just read it and you're like this, I read it and you know, Mike Sager, the magazine writer who I love, uh, He's like, the first commandment is thou shalt not bore. Oh, yeah. And I just was like, this is like, how can you take something as fun as the world's most expensive whiskey and turn it into homework? Like, like. Right. And, and the book you end up writing is not like that. So then how do you decide? OK, I got to. So do you go take like if that happened to me, if I when I open a document and it's inert and it's happened to every writer, yeah. even like, you know, because I agree with you, the, do not always every scene, if nothing else, yeah. uh, if it not every scene can be deep. Not everything, but everything you could, your job is to at least be entertaining, at the least. Just be entertaining. Dude, Axe has to go to a Metallica yeah. concert. Yeah, be entertaining. Yeah. And then you can go from there, right? Yeah. So what What did you, 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 you read it, you, you, I would go take a walk. What I would do is I would have to go take I, a walk. I put it up for longer than I probably should have. I just was like, I, I, got, I need a break from this. This is not working. So you stopped? I just stopped. And what'd you do? Uh, started doing ESPN stuff again. Right, you just started just doing started, your job, your day job. Doing my day job, and then uh, it sort of hit me. I mean, I had a uh, the book as it appears. I wrote the first third of it in a week. Once you, one, so once, then once you, it started rolling. When, when did you get? So how did you get to the idea? Uh, um, I think I should tell my story. Uh, because every time I would describe it to people. The things they were most interested in were weren't the history of the whiskey, but the relationship with Julian. So at first I was like, I'm gonna write a buddy movie. Like I'm just like, this is what I'm gonna do. You know, a rom-com with two dudes. Yep. And then that unlocked the structure, and then almost immediately all the things that I had been talking about with him and then at home sort of prompted by all of these thoughts it it, it was it, it, a dam broke did you also know because the other thing so all that stuff i said about the emotional ride one takes is is the most important thing but the book's also about the legacy of the south it's about what the nature of wealth, it's about the ephemeral nature of wealth. It's about what we carry as history versus yeah. what history really is. Did you understand, like, I, I guess, were you marching towards, like, the incredible moment when you tell us the history of Legacy Ranch, in one Legacy Ranch, yeah. and you tell that history as... And it works as a history of that, but also as a, um, a metaphor about American wealth and about what happens in, in 
uh, avaricious uh, yeah. uh, land. Like, were you aware that you were driving toward these moments? And did you know that there was a, both a critique and celebration of a kind of capitalism at the heart of it? Like, because, you know, that's part of why this book is so, so unbelievably successful and so compelling, right? Is because you are really talking about wealth, the South, greed, impermanence. Yeah, just legacy. Running through your fingers. You know, you say over and over in the book, sometimes, because whiskey has to be aged in these barrels, and, and the, the hard thing is to calibrate what to put in now so that it's going to be amazing in 15 years. And you point out at least five times that sometimes the whiskey doesn't make the trip. Yeah. And that's a super deep idea, right, as metaphor. So how did all that feather in? The, if you're talking about bourbon and Kentucky, you are talking about, one, you're talking about Southern mythology, which if you don't approach that with it, with, if you don't interrogate that, then it just, the whole project is full of shit. Like, like if, if you're not actively like saying, okay, like it demand, the mythology demanded that it be on the table, which then demanded that you look at it critically or else, and it had to be on the table or we can't tell this story. And then the other thing is that bourbon is so closely tied to nostalgia, which our mutual friend, Jason Isbell, like describes as one of, if not the most toxic things in the South. And, you know, I am as capable as anyone of, of falling into pits of nostalgia. And so it's almost, I just have to make sure that I am rigorous with myself that I don't just sort of like wander off and to look at the horse's land. But had you, but had you, as somebody who comes from, as you talk about yeah. in the book, you certainly, you, you both come, you come from a, a series of different legacies in the South. Yeah. Uh, you're someone who has had a measure of financial comfort, uh, as you talk about. And so families that have been able to successfully pass some stuff on have had to look at the ways in which families haven't, and most families haven't. And, and, and the ways in which you have, right? Right. Yeah. But, yes, yeah. yes. Yeah. I mean, this is not something I've said ever publicly, but I, I grew up the son of a, a rich man who wasn't actually, and was enough. And so, um, yeah, so... I, but I knew those things at a certain point in my childhood. I, and well, not as much in my childhood, but as I started to grow up. So I've looked at that stuff. I'm in a family where none of it was, none of it was passed on um, because none of it was left. And that's not something I've ever really um, articulated before, but it's true. And so reading the part um, of your book about the kinds of people who spend their money to buy a big splashy ranch, Although that's not a particular thing that my pop did, he did the equivalent of that in various different ways. And I was really struck by this. It's not merely optimism. It's a kind of self-regard. It's optimism, but it's really like a kind of self-regard that says I, I deserve and this. And it's also so myopic because why do you think that it is for sale? <laughs> Explain what I'm talking about. Yeah, yeah. Will you explain what I'm right, talking right. So, about? So, so one of the things that's fun to do is, uh, and there are several different ways to do this, but if you go look at the owners of the horses in every year's Kentucky Derby, so like when you get through this podcast, just pull one. Pull 2007, pull 1955, and pull 1922. I'm making those years up. I have no idea. And what you're going to find is every new money motherfucker in the whole world and the industries represented will be the industries that are at that moment brand new. So in 2007, it's going to be like subprime mortgages. And, you know, in 1954, it's going to be technology companies and chemical companies and, you know, you know, cause that's like, you're watching, sort of, you're watching say from 1940 to 1955, you're watching petroleum become the most important commodity in the world. And so you'll have a guy who owns a horse who does nothing but make pipes 
like some like and, and it just repeats itself over and over and and then you take that to the next level there are all these horses all over uh there are all these horse farms all over kentucky and they are forever bought and sold by people who made a fortune and lost it because they're the first thing you buy when it's going great and they're the first thing you sell when the shit hits the fan and like it it it, it is the degree to which you just pick one and like tell who who bought it from well, who because who bought there it from may who. be no more uh there there <laughs> there may be no more hubristic self-satisfied well, I- human in the world than the human being who wins the Kentucky Derby this er, each any year the moment the box when you cut just, to the box of the Kentucky Derby and you see the winner owner that is the the the, the kind of self-satisfaction at the highest possible well, level and the other thing that it's doing is uh the purity of the thoroughbred bloodline yeah. which oh, is all yeah. bullshit but like we'll get i mean it's it's not it, it, anyway that's a whole separate conversation but what you find is poorly bred people trying to rewrite their own history through perfectly bred horses and it's just hilarious. I mean, it's just hilarious. Yes, and that comes through that that sentence isn't in your book, but, but it should have been. And it's it, the it, yeah. but the idea of that and the way that whiskey bourbon plays in, and, and as you say, the the kind of bourbon as a nostal an agent of nostalgia or an agent of uh, cleansing one of the thoughts one might want to not want to deal with regarding yeah. all that stuff. Yes, and it just it is the. It is the literal and figurative anesthesia. Yes. Like that's the thing. And and the you send up the the idea of I would say like so you know the letters to Sicar aficionado um <laughs> that talk about, you know, the kind of tobacco that's used as the wrapper and then the stuff inside and the you know the Cuban factories where they roll the cigars uh, on their legs. And there is a sort of uh, a celebration of being the kind of person who has the kind of taste to appreciate this kind of thing. And there is a snobbishness associated with being the kind of person who understands and appreciates this unadulterated, difficult to apprehend. I don't mean to apprehend get, I mean to to understand, I know, understand, uh, apprehend. and you again, you know, uh, there are only a few things that you point to more than once in the book, but another one of them is the way Julian himself chooses to drink Pappy. And can you talk? Yeah. You know. right. So, so we could go to a bourbon bar six blocks from <laughs> this here. This is like my favorite thing. And so Julian drinks. 15-year-old Van Winkle. He's the, Julian's the guy Julian who Van owns Winkle. Pappy Van Winkle. He owns it. His grandfather was Pappy Van Winkle. He drinks it the way his father drinks it, which is the way his grandfather Pappy drinks it, which is on the rocks with a twist of lemon. And uh, there's a bourbon bar in New York City. Uh, we're not going to call them out. And because uh, uh, I'm sure they're lovely people. But Julian's son Preston went in to... Uh, order a drink who and, is the going to be the guardian yes, of this going Preston forward Van Winkle yeah you know and he's just like uh <laughs> says can I have a uh I have a 15 year old Van Winkle on the rocks with a twist of lemon and the bartender was refusing to pour it for him because of what just how they were ruining it and Preston got this real con- he knew what he was doing but he got this real confused look on his face and was like well uh I that's how I was taught to drink it by my father and by my grandfather. Hi, I'm Preston Van Winkle. And the guy just blood ran out of the guy, space. What did the guy, well, you were standing there, I right? I was not there. Oh, he, you just no, heard no, it yeah, from and him. And it's become like, it's Julian's favorite thing too. He did a dinner one time where uh, some big charity whiskey dinner where what he served were uh, uh, bourbon and Cokes with 23-year-old Van Winkle and Mexican Coca-Cola just to play with the idea of the preciousness of it. Another thing uh, that's wonderful in the book is sort of like, uh, I don't want to give away all the, the whole book, but because they're way you unspool this shit, it's great. 
But there is a Raiders of the Lost Ark, the um, warehouse kind of an <laughs> I- a thing that plays throughout the book too with some actual bourbon. And that speaks to kind of arbitrary nature of what we choose to value as a culture when. Well, it, it is. He has stuff now that in his house that you could he could sell and send a grandchild to college. And the reason that it's sitting in his house is that his father couldn't sell it at any price. He couldn't give it away. Yeah. So, <laughs> and, and yes, there are things that are intrinsically great. And this is something that but, might well be intrinsically but, great. But he very much understands the fact that everybody keeps asking, why don't you make more? Why don't you make more? And his answer is always like, we live 15 and 20 years in the future and we're not going to go pr- start printing money. You know, like, like the, he's, he was like, I remember when no one wanted bourbon and there will be a day when no one wants it again. And all the guys down on wall street are finding, you know, single village mezcals as opposed to, you know, the, the cyclical nature of it. One of the many reasons it's seductive to be around him is that because his business happens 15, 20, and 23 years in the future, I mean, they're, they're putting, what time? Not, they've just put things in bottles and put things in barrels, and he'll never live to see them put it in a bottle. Right. And so it just forces you to play a long game in a way. I mean, I work for a cable news network. I mean, it, you couldn't be more opposite of a bourbon maker than a cable news network. You know, it, well, but uh, when you were saying it, though, the other thing that I was thinking of now, the resonances of what he said is those words already sound anachronistic cable news network. That's already an, an anachronism. I know. Isn't that funny? It's already gone. Like, actually, you are more like in his world I'm a, because a it's over, dude. Yeah, it's over. Yeah. Like that cable news network. What, what does that mean to any almost to anyone listening now? 85 percent of whom don't even have cable. So. By the, by the way, uh, I have a two-year-old and a five-year-old. So if you were listening, fucking get cable. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, like, uh, but because no, by the way, someone's gonna have to invent cable now, because right. like, because cable, by the way, was awesome. Yeah. Well, sure. That's what we're finding out now. Yeah, there are great the, things about. I mean, the, yeah, the yeah. actual delivery system. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, it's exactly. But it's like the. But like, I liked being around him because it makes you think. I could live like this. I mean, what's the quote? It's a wise man who plants a tree the shade, under the shade of which he'll never sit. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it just was so interesting to me about how not caught up in the fad of it they are and how like they're just trying to make a thing and the people respond to it how they respond to it. How did you it. respond? Okay, speaking of that kind yeah. of thing, though, there are all sorts of readers of Papuland. Yeah. And uh, all sorts of people picking things out of it and out of the idea of this. And the and the, the book does not debunk the notion that this might be the best whiskey in the world. Yeah. It The book talks about this guy's dedication. It talks about the palate, why he, it, you know, you guys taste the, the bourbon 15 years later. It also says there's no such thing as the best. Yes. you. I, as a reader, did not feel that you were saying that a Julian's memory of what it's supposed to taste like is faulty it seems to me you it's, believe I don't, I don't that his that he does have a sense memory that is valid i think it it is the truest thing in him as opposed to like i think that like i don't know the degree to which his memories of his father and grandfather are sepia toned yeah of course but the whiskey is too serious for that, and that is real. He is not because some people. I was, I, you know, uh, that's interesting. That's, that's let's keep going. That's interesting. Yeah, go, go, go. No, 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 no. Because like, they, like, you know, the way they say, "Don't lie," to, you know, "Ball, yeah. don't lie." Yeah, don't lie to your doctor. Uh, you know, like he would. It's too important for him to to not remember it accurately. Well, it's funny. I was watching the documentary a great documentary um, about Jason and Amanda and oh my god well, that's a whole it's spectacular I, know. Uh, for, I can't know, believe they I mean my, well camera. we can we can mics off talk about that for a few minutes later yeah, for yeah, sure I was like holy <laughs> like, shit I was like but, uh, turn the fucking camera off but I mean it was amazing and <laughs> I, I you know wrote both of them as I'm sure you to tell them how amazing I thought it was but you know you're watching it 
is much like this thing about uh, and and all the arguments about commas and words very valid and really important and jason's the finest lyricist in the world i mean i guess you know under 70 division i guess uh i i guess craig finn can can wrestle it out with him and my buddy slade cleaves but basically jason's the best lyricist in the world except jason i was the only i had him on the last time we were talking with microphones i said i asked him about tupelo and i asked him about the melody and he's like you know, Brian, you're the only person ever uh, really asked about melody. Uh, and because melody is like that palette thing. Yeah. Basically, yes, Jason's known for being the best lyricist in the world. But maybe the difference, because like literally, he's a better melodist than Craig. I love Craig's, like my other, Craig Finn's my favorite. Like I, nothing I like more than an old steady record. The melody is like the taste of the bourbon. It's ineffable. It's uncatchable. It's tone and voice. And no one knows where the fuck well, it comes from. Well, and it's like, there. yes, Jason writes beautiful songs. And if he sat on a stage and played him with an acoustic guitar, that would be a lovely experience. But like, that band reaches down and brings down the thunder. I mean, it's like, you know... Uh, it's Bruce Springsteen and the E Street Band, and like they're what the thing that Bruce always says is that the story they told together was greater than the story he or any one of them could have told on their own. And like the thing that's interesting about Jason and his band, and I'm getting back to the Bourbon, is that there is a there is an ineffable thing that is beyond the mash bill and is beyond the science of it. And it isn't myth, and it isn't fake, yes. and and it is something that he can't even really articulate it, but he knows it when it's there, and he knows it when it's not, and his whole job is to try to make sure that the magic is there. Y that's, yes, that's it. That's his job. I love the so yes, but I love the four hundred unit too, and I've seen them yeah. more than anyone in concert. Uh, I they're all incredible, but I would actually. I, I think I might disagree. I think that the thing is that Jason and and it's Julian can feel yes that the that when Jason can catch a melody that separates him. Uh, Cover me up is this incredible song lyrically, but it becomes a hymn, a psalm. When this melody is attached to it, which is then the band can well, well, um, amplify. But I think that's like this. That's like this question of how Julian knows. Well, it's like this is going to taste like something in fifteen years. Well, it's like you know, ly lyrics are the way you talk to a human being, and melodies the way you talk to God. Perfect. You know, and and it's like the the his great gift, as you just alluded to, is it, it's it's an act. It's fundamentally an act of imagination. Yeah, right. It it is fundamentally a, you know, the ten thousand hours, blah blah blah. But like, I've done this enough to know, like 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 uh -huh. I can I can imagine based on this bag of parts, it's going to go into this barrel. It's going to do this mysterious thing. It's going to either make the trip or it's not. And I have no control over it when it's in there. And so I'm not going to stress out about it. But I know that when you put these parts into this thing and then the magic happens, this is what comes out. I, you know, you said the belief. And now I think you just tied it all together, which is Bruce believes in the story that the E Street Band is telling about brotherhood and friendship and possibility. Yes. As Jason believes in the story the 400 unit is telling about a new South and about, well, uh, right? Yeah, uh, yeah, that, and that, um, uh, uh, about the power of the unit and yeah. about redemption. Yes. And because they imbue these bands and then the bands give it back to them, it becomes this thing. And Julian believes in the, not in the snobby ass, Julian believes in the restorative power of like, um, the myth being true well, in and, a way, and, and that the, the, and you do somehow. Well, the, the, I totally do, and that because all, some myths are true, and they usually have to do with they they are made true by the work and by the belief in them, and yeah. like so, like 
If you ask me what instrument does Bruce Springsteen play, I wouldn't say it's not the guitar. He plays the E Street Band. Sure. Or for Jason, I'd say it's the same thing. And like it is a, uh, it is a Rosetta Stone that. One of the things Bruce said in the the his introduction speech, introdu- introducing the E Street Band into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, is that like all bands come from a time and a place, and so like, he was so smart that. If he didn't replace Clarence with someone who had a tie to Clarence, yes. the whole fucking thing falls down. And so, like, the understanding that the most precious thing in the world is keeping alive the time and the place so that you don't feel ridiculous telling stories about it, that's the ball game. Yeah, man, you know, my favorite thing in the whole book, uh, Bruce's whole book, is when he has to go see Jake after the bad, and he's, after the bad audition. And he's just when, like, when he goes and sees Jake after the bad audition and he's like, do you not understand what this is? What I'm giving you, what I'm offering you. And underneath that is what we need, what they need, what the audience, what, what the world needs is for you to fucking step up. And you can't, and you just can't. Young be- man, step up because the world needs you because the world needs me. And I can't be me if you don't be you. No, because it, it becomes ridiculous. Then it's just a millionaire singing song. Like, do you know what I mean? Like, like Yes, like, of course. Like the line between magic and farce is so thin. I well, I'm, no, you're hitting me because when so the first time I played Jungle Land on this tour was at the garden. Yeah. And I took my my children and, and my wife Amy and I took the kids. They're yeah. twenty-seven and twenty-three now, my kids, you know. Jesus. And they grew up in the, well, they, we grew up, uh, we would take long drives and, and they would listen to Jungle Land was the thing that would finally let them go to sleep. Like Anna in particular, Jungle Land. And, and we go to the show and, you know, that's the moment. I mean, Jake comes out and to the front of the stage, out into the audience and he plays that solo. And I mean, I just fell apart. I mean, weeping and weeping. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll, I'm, now I'm about to cry. Like sitting there with my children, grown. And what, you know, knowing how many things, I mean, one of my kids is very in love and could be with the person they're going to be with. And like knowing that might be, this is so tied into everything Pappy Land's about. It, you know, but being there with, with, with my kids and, and, and having this moment as Jungle Land's playing and Jake, the legacy of Clarence playing the solo and the thought, I don't know how many more nights it's going to be just the four of us ever. Because... They're going to have spouses. They're going to think, and that's, we're going to welcome. It's going to grow. And I want it to grow. I need it to grow. But the four of us in this little moment. Down in. Yeah. It's sanctified. It's sanctified, man. That's the. And and your book's about what's sanctified, right? And And what should be and what shouldn't be. And, and what you choose should be and shouldn't be. Yes. Like like it, it, the act of choosing. I mean, it's, you know, again, you know, as Bruce, it's it's embarrassing to want so much from rock and roll. It's embarrassing to want so much from a bottle of whiskey. And yet, like, one of the things that I was really moved to see is that they know on a certain level that it's ridiculous. And, but they owe something to the previous two generations and they owe something to you for believing and what they owe you is a shared belief. I was sitting at their house one time and it's so easy to make fun of whiskey bros. It's just so easy. And like, I got a good, you know, I was around a lot of them. And so like, I've got a, I've got a good little sort of series of set pieces. Yes. And Sissy told me sort of gently was just like, that's really unkind. Because, like, who are you? You're doing the exact same thing in a way that the bartender was doing to Preston. You are telling someone how they should enjoy something. And I was just like, it hit me. I was like, oh, my God. Because, I, because people within their own... Everybody's just trying to find Experience. Something. It's what's possible. And the limits out. of how they were raised and who they are and, and what their capacity is. They receive things and it's, and it's differently. Just, and, and, but... Yeah. No, but what you were sending up is not someone getting a genuine kick out of I'm, out of it. You're sending up I'm people so, trying to well, the stat- uh, status the status of to, it. to try to sort of status climb as a result of having the whiskey as opposed to 
you know, someone who's going to share it with an open heart. And and yes, they might not know why they love it. Like, of course, and, um, of course, um, most people but, don't know the difference. But every bottle I get, I open and give it. And like You share. Like, I have zero bottles. That's not true. I have two. But so Julian, when each of my daughters were born, sent a bottle of Pappy with a handwritten label Amazing. with their names on it. Yeah. And but those are the only two bottles right now of Van Winkle in my house because if it's there or if I have a purple cap Willet, yeah, you know one of the, like I am the minute somebody comes over who I know enjoys it, I yeah, it's we're opening it. I mean I'm not yeah I do that with the Michter stuff. I have all the best yeah. Michters the celebration. I have all the amazing Michters bottles and yeah, um, they're my I mean I'm deep friends with them for a very long time and and yeah. so that I get I have I get everything. I share it instantly too. Yeah, that, stuff is, um, that stuff is so good. I, my right. favorite, uh, Dave Costable, who plays Wags on Billions, gave me my favorite alcohol thing that I w- really do not treat myself to is um, this this sauternes called Chateau de Cam. And I've probably treated myself to five glasses of it in my whole life, where I've done it at a restaurant, five just at one glass, and I've I, I know three times I bought a three seventy five size of it but that's it I'm not, that's it I've bought for myself in my life but Dave Costable for seven years of billions got me two bottles and um, oh my god he's becoming wags he's the, it's the greatest <laughs> gift ever it's the greatest oh my gift god. of all time man because uh, he knew he's like you won't get I, he was like I want to get you something that I know you won't splurge on and I was like I definitely won't but I can't wait to drink it I have it in the house to, sh- to share because yeah. that's what I I like want to watch someone's face because to me that thing is intrinsically that great. I just it lights me up. It's like I I can't believe how incredible it is, and I love that feeling of showing. Like here, just taste this. Yeah, just here. You want, just taste. This. You want to melt your face off here? Have just, a little just of this. Just taste it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, I can't I can't wait to do that. I do that with books more than anything else. I will say. Well, you, I I've read the book you sent me, and uh, I love to send people books. Uh, I also like. What did I send you? Do you remember? Uh, yeah, the biography of the screenwriter. Oh, oh, the Ben Hecht book. Yeah. yeah. Oh, amazing. Yeah. And uh, and then the uh, I like to do this more before Gold Belly because they it, they've made it so easy that now that I used to love just sitting people boxes of meat. Oh, that's awesome. And just it just shows up at your house. There's a place in Louisiana called the Best Stop, and it's a gas station. Or it used to be a gas station. And it's just a meat market in Scott, Louisiana, and they will send these boxes of like all sorts of crazy. And so, like, I'd love to send people talk, boxes. Talk, I, I hear, book, here's, here's what it's so easy to talk to you that we're going to drift off. And uh, I, a couple, there's a couple things I want to get to for sure. That has to do with everything we're talking about. I think that has to do with faith and belief more than anything else, which is like you, um, in all of your writing, your writing is deeply human. I would, I would say to people, get Pappyland because it's out on paperback May 30th, or get the audiobook, which I loved also. I, I also have read it in the original hardback, but... The way you, um, when you find a subject that really animates you, you have the ability to find the humanity in it, but your, your stories always, I think I can say always understand the end point is death. Yeah. You seem highly aware all the time that the end point is death. And it's either a character or, um, and certainly in your, in, you know, and about the ways in which athletes can make us forget that we're mortal and how the we're trying to remind themselves, you know, trying to fight with their own ideas of uh, what that means. And you clearly have the ability to be cynical, though you're not as a writer. And your large part of what really is in the, the book is you deciding clearly that like the most important thing on earth is to have a family. Yeah. And you bring us into a time where you weren't sure you and your wife were going to be able to have a child. Yeah. You're really trying to. Yeah, which is a funny euphemism. Yes, <laughs> but but you were not sure it was working. Yeah, yeah, and you were not, not sure she was, was going to carry. Not working. You were not sure what was going to yeah. happen. You were down yeah. to the the last sort of reasonable, literally ability down, yeah. to to yeah. to do this for a variety of reasons. Yeah, and you you don't shy away from the idea that you were either driving toward a cliff or a ramp in a way. What did it feel like to, when you were writing about it at first, had you, did you already know where it landed? Meaning, as you were making your original notes, did you know no, that no. you guys were okay? That, no. that you were going to have a family? No. So you write most of the book not knowing? Yes. 
And had you said to yourself, if it didn't work out, you're going to strip that stuff out or are we going to put it in? I was going to leave it in. Uh, my wife and my mother uh, read it. Uh, my wife had no changes. She was very nervous about being that on display, but ultimately sort of, she jokingly calls the book Eat, Pray, Love for Dads. Yeah, and right. So, and so, so like she, she got it. And then uh, uh, my mom had one note and uh, she asked if I would change. Uh, my father was an alcoholic to my father drank a lot. Something about the word. And I, you know, I let her have that one, and and it came through anyway. But you know, oh, it comes through. But I like the it comes but through, I like, sir. But I liked the 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 just wham. Yeah, like well, it, no, it comes. Through. Yeah, and so uh, I uh, so no, I was I, we were going down the road. You know, either e- like either way, it was. It's interesting you put it about a ramp or a cliff because I certainly thought that I was like, man, I don't know how this is going to turn out. You know, I think that uh, you, know, you don't want to be. There's nothing worse in the world than cynicism, and I like. I, yeah. It, I and like we're all capable of it. I'm certainly like, like, I. It's fun, you know. And, and uh, maybe cynicism is the wrong word, but you're certainly aware in your in their in your writing that under the surface of a lot of stuff that looks beautiful is a lot of stuff that's ugly well, as shit. Well, and, and then... Right? I mean, you do make well, it a point to go look over here and well, go underneath that. Well, that, and that, that... Particularly in the South. But one thing doesn't preclude... Like, I've not... The ugliness is what makes it also beautiful. I mean, there, there's yeah, a... Yeah, sure. You know, there, yes. like, I like that. Yes. And, like, I also, you know, I like the idea that, uh, you know, what, we're 10 blocks from the White Horse Tavern right now, yeah. probably? Yeah. You know, uh, about ten blocks, not even maybe eight blocks. And, yeah, and like you know, uh, I mean, Fern Hill, the Dylan Thomas poem is the fuck. That might be the best thing that's ever been written in English. And like, like I, you know what? We're sitting here. Uh, I mean, you're excluding a touch too much by Bon Scott. <laughs> when you, well, one of the greatest things I read one of those interviews with one of those Navy SEALs. Isn't that, isn't that is that Bond dude, or is that uh, Brian Johnson? Dude, I can't get that wrong. I was I was uh, I was listening to one of those interviews. Fuck! With the if Na- I got that wrong, I hate myself. With one of the Navy SEALs that was on the Bin Laden raid, yeah. and they asked him what he was listening to because they were listening to music in the helicopter, and he sort of like said, "You could tell he was a little embarrassed," and he was like, "I was listening to ACDC Money Talks, which is just uh, the." Uh, Oh, here's the end of Fern Hill. Nothing I cared in the lamb-white days that time would take me up to the swallow-thronged loft by the shadow of my hand and the moon that is always rising, nor that riding to sleep I should hear him fly with the high fields and wait to the farm forever fled from the childless land. Oh, as I was young and easy in the mercy of his means, time held me green and dying, though I sang in my chains like the sea. It was one of those nights when you turned out the lights and everything comes into view. She was taking her time. I was losing my mind. There was nothing she wouldn't do. That's touched too much. Uh, I, that, that's very good. <laughs> and it was Bon Scott. I'm just fucking around. Yes, of course, the Dylan Thomas. And you're saying that he that he would go to the White Horse. Well, that's yeah. yeah. Supposedly, yes. I mean, I, yes, this is I one know. of those things that like. Well, the White Horse has been there since the Civil War. Well, so that's War. supposedly where, yeah, he drank, but, where he drank himself yeah. to death. Uh, supposedly he had 18 consecutive shots of old granddad said that I believe is the record and then fucking died. No one may. Right. Yes. Yeah, uh, which don't, so you're saying, no, that the, no, but like, but like the, de- the, yeah, like reckoning with that is certainly something that like every story ends in death. Yes. You know, but, but then the, but, but I, I think what I was trying to get to is that. You, as you said about the legacy of the South, when you're writing about all this and you are celebrating these aspects of Southern culture that Julian understands, plays on, uses, surfs above, and then puts out there, you really take the time to explain all that was sacrificed and lost and ugly and brutal um, that was going on that led to these moments. Well, well, that, and you 
conceptualize that as you're talking about wanting to have your daughter and like have a life, you're talking about the legacy that served you and your people of slavery. The whole thing. And you're, you're, so I'm saying you are, you're not running from the parts that are horrendous. It, if we continue, and I'm saying we as Southerners, if that is even such a thing anymore, and that's a whole separate conversation, like I'm not entirely sure that it is, but if we keep running to protect something or keep refusing to call it by its name, there won't be anything to protect. There is no good without the bad. There is no, like, I mean, one of the things that's so shocking, this is, one of the things that's so shocking to me is that uh, people's pathological unwillingness to say this is what happened here. And it is, that goes deeper than politics, although politicians are certainly weaponizing this fear and urge and like, but it's, you know, it's the, none of these politicians are leaders. They're just guys out for a walk. And, uh, but like one of the things that's fascinating is that people are scared to call it by their name because by its name, because, uh, they're scared that if they do that, everything will turn to ashes. And what I would argue is that it's already ashes and that if you ever want to reanimate life into it, the very first step is calling it by its name. And like that, to, like that's yes. the South to me. And if, you, if you're not willing to do that, as opposed to protecting something you claim to love, you are actually the most dangerous agent of destruction for any hope of a future that it might have. So that my whole that that's the thing that makes me fucking crazy about it is that like if self-preservation is the strongest human instinct, then get some. Right. Well, that's this, like that makes me nuts. Well, the the this approach and this idea. I guess so when you're writing and you're telling a story that you know is as you said a body story is about the connection of these people is about family is about ultimately love winning all around, yeah. love of the bourbon, love of the legacy, love of the ideal, love of family, yeah. love of fellow man. But you as a person, as a historian, you knowing I can't tell it without all that other stuff for all those reasons, do you write those sections separately and know you're going to feather them in somewhere? Do you just decide as you're going along? And meaning just as a technician, how yeah. do you, how consciously are you balancing that stuff or how much of it is instinctive in it, the work? It's mostly instinctive in that, uh, like, I didn't outline Pappy Land. I just did it. Sick. And like, I, I, I didn't, there was no, and by the way, I'll show you the picture of the thing I'm doing now. Like, it's very much like your boards here. Like, you know, I mean, I took this picture yesterday. Uh, you know, here's the, oh, like, that's just, there's that all over my house. Note cards and they're yeah, different colors and they mean right. shit. And you didn't do that for Pappy Land. No, I just let the next section tell me what it wanted to be and then let the one after that and the one after that. And uh, uh, I liked that. And like it was very nerve wracking. Had the book, you finished all your research before? No, because you keep going back. So yeah, no, I kept going back. And you were so, writing. You would write as you were going back. No, no I, I did most of it, and then started writing. Okay. And then as you, you know, and then sure, you went for the tasting after. And then basically. and then I went to and there were different things that were happening. Like I'm saying, when you tasted the 15 year later. Oh no, I'd already done that. You had done that before you started. You had done that before you started writing. Yes. And then what I would do is go back and fill holes. Awesome. Right. Like, like when, I, when, when you started writing, you realized I spent six weeks reporting this and the book doesn't want to go there. The book wants to go here where I don't know shit. Right. Like, and then you had and to then go you figure had to go, that out. Like, like, you know, but instead of making it do the thing I'd already done, I was just, well, this is where it wants. I mean, I'm, I don't mean to sound like so metaphysical about it, but like it was going to go where it wanted to go. And I was just to keep it out of the ditches. But knowing I have to get in there yeah. 
the legacy of slavery. I have to talk about slavery. Yeah. I have to talk about racism. I have to talk about structural inequality. Yeah. But I have to do it in a way. And by the way, those are things that the um, target audience for your book doesn't want to read well, about. Well, and so how do you think they don't want to read about that? Well, you have to do it in a way also that where, you know, you have to make that stuff so integral to the story that you and the book and the reader just understand that it is the only place it could go next. It can't feel like homework. Right. No, and, and it doesn't. And, and it's it amazing, and, actually. And, and nobody, yeah. It can't be preachy, and you can't put shit on somebody else that you're not willing to put on yourself. And you can't, like, they're just all sorts of, you know, they're just, it has to be inevitable. That, yep. if, that if, if we're wading through this together, you have to trust that I'm not going to seal any corridors off. And I tried to indicate early in the book with that that was true so that people wouldn't read it anxiously. Like, is this son of a bitch going to... Like, right. Do you know what I mean? Like, yes. I just wanted to indicate that like we're taking the walk. No, and you did. And we, we, we are so happy to take the walk. Right, there's so much more you and I could talk about. but um, We'll do it next time. We, that's what I was thinking, that we have to do it again when your next book uh, comes out. But I, I really got to say to people, Pappy Land is uh, it's just a book that comes along rarely. Uh, and you should go and read it, uh, give it to someone for Father's Day. Um, which is clearly why the paperback's coming out May 30th to set up for Father's Day. Whatever do you mean, Brian? Yeah. So, <laughs> this, uh, all of the, this beautiful conversation, to again quote Bruce Springsteen, uh, has its origins in a shameless promotional opportunity. <laughs> it really does. <laughs> so uh, give it to someone for, for Father's Day yeah. and, and think about what all this stuff means as you do it and go find writes other books and watch his documentaries. I mean, he is uh, not merely an author, but it all springs from his authorial voice. And so go from there and uh, then you're going to want to check out all his other stuff. Right. Thompson. Thanks for being here, folks. You can find him online. You can find me. Uh, I'm all on Instagram and you can email me the moment BK at gmail.com. I apologize for my ebullience of reading the lyrics to touch too much, crushing your Dylan Thomas, but I was so happy that I hadn't gotten the Bon Scott, uh, Brian Johnson thing wrong that uh, I had no choice. All right, everyone. See you next time. Bye.